Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. That Stephen Spurrier not held his famous Paris tasting in 1976, Chateau Montalino would still have become one of Napa Valley's most important labels. This is only one reason why taking over the reins as winemaker there bears such a great weight. Following the steps of Gergich and Barrett only adds to that weight. But today, Matt Crafton maintains the legacy of these winemaking greats with a thoughtful demeanor. After working in East Coast vineyards, Crafton landed a gig as assistant winemaker at Chateau Montalena. In 2014, he was named winemaker there. I sat down to talk with Crafton about maintaining the legacy of the historic winery, making wines true to place as well as vintage, and of course, to taste some delicious wine. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Matt Crafton, winemaker at Chateau Montalena. Welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I'm really excited to be here. How'd you get involved in wine? That's a big question. <laughs> so um, I'm originally from Virginia, and a little I've bit of wine being made there. Yeah, some good wine now too. So I started in the cellar at the very bottom immediately after college. I went in to, Virginia. In or? Virginia, right. yeah, I went to UVA and graduated with a degree in economics. And uh, as any good economist will tell you, I, uh, I didn't go into finance <laughs> and decided that uh, you know I was 22 and wanted to try my hand at something different, try my hand at something creative and. Um, maybe take a little bit of a different path compared to what most folks do and literally decided that, hey, let's give this winemaking thing a try. Why wine, though? I mean, what, what called you? That's a great question. I, I was drawn to the agriculture side of it. Virginia has a long history of agriculture. Um, I think part of it, though, was sort of the, the, the what right brain creativity piece where you're actually making something with your hands. There aren't a whole lot of people that do that, and I think wine is a great medium for that art, so to speak. And on top of it, wine has this just distinct tradition uh, in society and in the world where it's an integral part of how we live day to day, and it makes people happy. And it's something that I think, um, as Americans, we're starting to embrace more and more. Did you grow up around wine? No, my family was never really big on, uh, on, on wine consumption. I, I grew up in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, which is a, a great wine town with, uh, with a lot of tradition. Um, but for me, it was you know, what my mom and dad really instilled in me was, uh, was you know, hard work, number one, and that also that it's not always, you don't have to follow a, a traditional path in life. And like I said, I wish I could say I had this aha moment at age 22, but it was just seemed like an amazing opportunity to try. And if it didn't work, I could always go to law school or go into finance or something you like that. You could easily go down the beer route, too. I mean, you're, right. you're a younger man. All <laughs> the guys right. your age are doing beer. That's right. Well, 15 years ago, this was well before the craft beers were popular. I mean, Sam Adams was probably the only, you know, quote sure. unquote, craft brewery around. And everything else was dominated by, you know, Miller, Coors, and, and Anheuser. So I wish I could say I had the foresight at that point to go and get into the craft brewing industry, but um, that wasn't the case. So how did you get from cellar rat in Virginia 
to making wine at Chateau Matalena? <laughs> what was the in-between? Yeah. I'm hoses. sure that wasn't like yeah. your next gig. No, no, no. I, I dragged hoses for a long time. So I worked in Virginia for about three years. And uh, after that, I basically had hit the glass ceiling, so to speak. At the winery I was at, we made 60,000 cases, uh, which is significantly bigger than Chateau Montalena. But the winemaker there, who uh, to, to this day is still a good friend, um, he was had worked in Napa Valley before coming out to Virginia and said, you know, you've probably topped out here. You could stay in Virginia. I could probably get you an assistant winemaker role. I was cellar master at the time. And uh, he says, or you can go to California and head to the major leagues. You can go to grad school. You can try your hand out there. And you know, I was in my mid-20s. Um, I said, hey, let's, let's give this a try. And so moved out to California in 2006. Uh, went to grad school at UC Davis. Worked. Oh, in, you did grad school there. Okay. Yep. Went to grad school there. Uh, worked at a bunch of different wineries and vineyards in Sonoma and Napa. And long story short, ended up at Chateau Montalena in 2008 on a one-year deal. And uh, 10 plus years later, I'm still here. Sounds like home, huh? It is home. What is it about Montalena that you love? Oh, wow. It's. I think it's the. Well, the people are are unique and wonderful in their own way. I mean, the Barrett family. Um, we are just really blessed to have amazing owners. Uh, and I think the other side of it is, everyone that works there wants to be there. Uh, there's no one there who's mailing it in. Who's there just for a paycheck? Who's taking the easy way? Um, Bo Barrett, our CEO, has really instilled this culture of um, pushing to innovate and drive and improve. Uh, but at the same time, he allows all of us to be creative and to come up with new ideas. And collectively, you have this incredibly selfless, motivated group of people who are working towards, hopefully, you know, again, going back to that altruistic piece, making a delicious beverage for people, but also creating something that's unique that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And I'd say the other side of it is the fact that Chateau Montalena probably has, you know, we would probably have two of the most unique growing sites uh, in the world to create these beautiful wines that we have. And, you know, they're not making any more Napa Valley and they're not making any more Chateau Montalena land. And so um, what we have is a real asset, you know, that, that ground, you know, plus our people, those are the two things that can't be copied anywhere else. So at Chateau Montalena, are you using only your own fruit? So are you buying any fruit or no? Is it just those fruit from your own two sites? So it, it depends. Um, we make about 35,000 cases a year, which sounds like a lot, but compared to some of our it's neighbors, small it's very small scale, on that yeah. scale. Uh, and I'd say we've purchased as much land as we possibly could, but we have some partners in the Chardonnay program and in our Napa Cabernet program that we've been working with, you know, 25, 30, 40 years in some cases. and. Uh, we work with them in a way that they farm exclusively for us, and it's been a really great partnership. I mean, it, what that does is it gives you know it gives the people, the families that own those lands, gives them the opportunity to have a you know a steady paycheck, a home for their fruit, and it aligns our interests. You know, they want to grow really high quality fruit because they know that what ends up in the bottle is what eventually drives the entire market, and drives the success of their farm and their you know their family farm. So again, we have some really great partnerships, but they have to be the right kind. Sure, sure. And it sounds like your partners go back so long. With yes, you. and it's. How long ago did you become winemaker at Chateau Matalina? So I was promoted in 2014, and. Uh, so you're there four years, five five years now. Five years. When, when you were promoted to that role, what was your reaction? I mean, was there was there some weight on you? I mean, these are. Uh, Big shoes to fill, making a Chateau Montalena Chardonnay that were made by, you know, Mike Gergich, one of the greatest winemakers Napa Valley's ever seen. 
me gentle Montalino shirt today. No, no, you know, you know it's you. It was a, it was a job I never thought would be even available, to be perfectly honest. And I remember the day that Bo offered it to me. I think I went out and sat down in the vineyard, and just kind of soaked it in for an hour. I don't even think I told my wife until the afternoon. I mean, it was just, it wasn't even on my radar. And uh, obviously, it's a tremendous honor. And they're right. There, you're right. There are, you know, tremendously large shoes to fill, but I think that, you know, there, there aren't that many things that, you know, hard work, motivation uh, can't overcome. And I think that if you have that, that mentality of, um, it's a mentality that, you know, you know drives you to, to, again, to improve every year, to honor that legacy of the past by continuing to innovate, um, which is essentially what got us to where we are now. Um, you know, we hope that'll lead to success in the future. When you're making your wines, you know, Chateau Montalena Chardonnay, Chateau Montalena Cabernet Sauvignon, those mean things to people in their minds. Do you feel that you're solely committed to making that, or do you get to bring something to the game and add some of you to your winemaking? What's that balance? So the only real guidelines or goals we have is to obviously create a delicious product that's also ageable. I mean, and I'd say aside from that, we have complete creative freedom. And that keeps all of us, I think, very stimulated intellectually, which is important. Um, but no, there's no recipe, there's no formula. Um, we really do focus on expressing the vintage in the glass. And it's a, um, it's a, can seem a little bit nebulous. You started out with a pretty good run of vintages for right. a winemaker. <laughs> right, but it's a challenge every year, and I think that's what that's what keeps us on our toes. And so you have to be willing to continually learn, and you have to be willing to again think outside the box. But it's it's all in the perspective of those first you know forty five vintages that we have under our belt. It's a very unique position to be in. Tell me about the growing sites that you own. So the Montalena Estate Vineyard sits at the, uh, the northern end of the Napa Valley at the base of Mount St. Helena. For those of you that haven't visited, you know, the Napa Valley is very small. Uh, it's only about 30 miles in length and two miles at its widest point. It's kind of shaped like a banana. And, but in that one tiny little valley where we produce, you know, three, four percent of all the wine in California, but almost the majority of the value, we have a tremendous amount of, you know, soil diversity, geological diversity, topographical. Yeah, particularly after Calistoga, everything sort of comes together. Everything comes and... right there, exactly. And so on our, you know, small hundred acre piece that we have, I'd say you see just as much diversity on that as any other parcel in the valley. And it's gives us these incredible colors to paint with. Um, these are different flavors and aromas and textures and all of them come together in this beautiful assemblage that you know ends up in, in the bottle. So that's, that's your estate uh, vineyard. Mm -hmm. Where's the other growing site? So uh, the Chardonnay comes from the west side of the Oak Knoll District. And, and Chardonnay is a really, obviously a very versatile grape. I mean, people have it planted everywhere. And, but the key for us is you know, to make a wine like this that's very precise and elegant and has this very classic structure, but these you know, beautiful Napa Valley sensitivities or sensibilities, you can really only do that in one place. And it's a function of not only soil, what's going on underground, but also obviously the weather. And you can say that about most varieties, but Chardonnay in particular. And so it's very latitude driven. So unlike 
most areas in the world, uh, the Napa Valley actually gets, uh, um, gets warmer as you go from south to north, uh, with the warmest area being St. Helena. Uh, so we're, we're north of Carneros, north of the city of Napa, which are the cooler areas. And Oak Knoll's at this really beautiful spot where we get this, in the growing season, we get fog till 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. That helps preserve the acidity that allows our wines to develop and age slowly in the bottle. Um, but then in the afternoon, we get enough heat to bring out those really amazing Napa Valley aromas and flavors that you really can't find anywhere else. And so it's this one tiny little corner of Oak Knoll, kind of up, up, up against the hills, where you can make Chardonnay like this. So Chardonnay is just terrific great because you really get to do so much with it as a mm -hmm. winemaker. It's a blank palette for you. Yes. That Chenin Blanc is another one I think of that's blank palette. But Chardonnay particularly... You know, there's there's a, such an amazing range of Chardonnays that you can make. You can make something crazy and linear like Chablis, or rich and round and voluptuous like Russian River Valley. Where, where's the Chardonnay you're making fall in that in that spectrum? Well, I think it's I think it's unique in its own way. I know we're going to taste some later on, but uh, I don't think you know maybe maybe the way to answer this is I think in the 1970s when the Napa Valley was really in its infancy in the modern era at least. Obviously, there's been a lot of history which prohibition kind of killed. People were looking to traditional wine growing regions for inspiration from a stylistic standpoint and I think that's how we've come up with um, you know the the stylistic references that, that you were just that you just mentioned but I think over the last 25 years we've gotten much more comfortable with who we are and that it doesn't have to our wine doesn't have to fit into a specific type or category it's okay being who you are and I think as a brand we're very very comfortable with that um, you know, we, we don't need to be everything to everyone. We just want to share what we do, and um, we do it in a way that we think is the best, highest expression of our site and the variety and the growing season. We hope people are going to like it. We hope people share the values that we hold as a family brand, and we hope you like our wine. But if not, there are, you know, 400 other brands in Napa that sure. would love to have you as a, a customer. Well, the kind of Chardonnay you can right, come exactly. out of Napa. And then the same, I guess, for your... For, for your Cabernet, you're trying to, again, express the, the vintage and the land? Yeah, so I, I remember having a conversation with, with Randall Graham a number of years ago. You've, you know Randall, I'm sure. And he basically told me that every wine in the world can, is, can get broken down into two categories. There are you know, wines of place and wines of effort. And the vast majority of wines on the market are wines of effort, where it's really the you know the hand of man, so to speak, that defines the what's unique and delicious about that wine potentially, and it's all the winemaking that that really defines it because the fruit maybe isn't isn't extraordinary or unique. Chateau Manzalena has two of the most you know wonderfully unique growing sites uh, for these two wines, specifically the Chardonnay and the Cabernet. And so it's really our job again to express that. So you're going to you'll notice some of the you know the, the classic quote unquote Bordelais structure because that's how you build ageable wines. Uh, on the other hand, this is very distinct to Calistoga. You really can't make this wine anywhere else in the world. So maybe that answers your question a little bit better. Is that when you have when you have the ability to create very site driven wines, you end up with something that you know by definition can't really be replicated anywhere else. Sure, sure. And when it comes to your winemaking, how hands-off are you? I mean, are you completely not an eventualist? You know, where do you fall in that uh, when you come to making wine? No, I'd say we work very, very hard to make ourselves disappear. 
and it's that it's that window into the vintage that takes so much work because we have to modify our winemaking every year. I mean, there's some core principles that we all follow, uh, but you do have to have um, a really strong fundamental understanding of the farming side first to understand the nature of the vintage and the potential, and then the science is really really what drives the ageability component of it. And then you put on your artist hat to help express, and so. It's, it's the combination of those things together that allow us to make the decisions that we do in terms of changing maybe how we handle the fruit in a certain vintage or when we pick or the potential of how we're going to express certain flavors and textures. And it's a, it's a really, um, it can be a very humbling experience sometimes, but also it can be very gratifying when you get something right. Let's talk a little bit about your farming. Are you practicing organics, biodynamics, anything like that? Or is this pretty conventional with, you know, a limited hand? How, how, what, what's your farming like? So it, it's about doing what's right first for our land and then also for our people. Um, organics, um, organics are great uh, for a number of reasons, um, but a lot of organics is kind of like thou shalt not do things. And then there are also some like significant pitfalls to organics uh, that require, you know, multiple passes uh, with a specific organic treatment. Well, that adds to your carbon footprint and compacts your soil. So, I mean, I think organics has a very good, um, it's a very strong um, uh, brand recognition in in the United States, and I think that's great as people start asking more questions. But for us, it's more about responsibility and farming sustainably for the future. I don't believe in biodynamics. I think um, a lot of dancing under the moonlight. Huh? Well, I think anytime you're you're spending time investing in your vineyard, whether whether it's you know cover crop, compost, all of those things, if you look at your soil like a bank, this is an analogy our vineyard manager uses. Uh, we make a with we take a withdrawal every year in our in our fruit, and so you have to reinvest. You have to make a deposit, and so that's what you do by taking care of your soil first. So I think from that standpoint, like yes, like biodynamics is good, but then you kind of go off the deep end and doing some of these these treatments that you know th there's no science behind any right, of this. Right. And you know if it makes you feel good, that's great, and maybe it differentiates you in the market to help get your wine on a shelf. That's fine. That's marketing too, but. I don't really follow the, um, uh, the you know, some people who believe, well, biodynamics is like organics taken to another level. It's like that's not the case at all. And when you're making Chateau Montalena wines, you know, it's not like you're a young startup. No. It's not like you're a new brand fighting for recognition on the shelves. What does that mean to you in the cellar? It's, it's a challenge. On the one hand, we have to honor that legacy and tradition. There are people who've been buying these wines, our wines from the 1970s, and are still buying today, and they have expectations. They expect our wines to age. They expect our wines to develop and become more beautiful and complex over time. That's a, that's a, that's a challenge. And on the other hand, we can't be a backward-looking brand either. You have so many... I guess we'll call them, you know, legacy brands, and we can be one of them uh, that are backward-looking, that are looking to the, you know, the great days of the 1970s or 1980s, where they found fame and fortune potentially. But what's really unique about Montalena, as I think I mentioned at the beginning, is that, you know, Bo challenges us to improve. Bo challenges us to look forward. I mean, the first 45 to 50 years of this brand um, are are in the books. And so now it's what are we going to do for the next 50 years? 
And that's a big part of what I do every day is thinking about that and saying, you know, what is going to be the legacy for the future? And what can I do to help make that a really positive one? What was it like tasting the first wine that you made that you were responsible for with Bo Barrett? <laughs> <laughs> Bo is pretty funny. Uh, he's, he is extremely honest and he is, I say, refreshingly honest. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, but I think he also has, he has the, the understanding of, and he has this, this wisdom that allows you to put things in perspective. I know that's not a really a, a non-answer. Let me give you a, a better answer. It was- uh, well, you nervous tasting wine. Right, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you have to think about, so, you know, Bo has been on this property since 1971, 72, was there for the very first vintage. He was winemaker from 1982 to 2008. He's still involved. That's a lot of pressure. And so all I can do is, you know, try to create something that um, that he can respect and that we're all really proud of. I mean, maybe a good example is after we go through and we geek out on our blends and we tear the wine apart and we spend weeks, sometimes months making blends, there's a really, you know, we, we all create, we make a little like 375 uh, bottle to take home and we finish, we bring it home and at dinner that night, you pour it and you drink it and you're like, is this wine delicious? Right. Right? And if it's not, you haven't done your job. And it's a very, it's a very simple kind of, you know, hedonistic uh, piece of life, whereas you have to want to drink it. You have to want to finish the bottle. And if you haven't done that, then so many wines can be interesting that you don't want a second sip of. And so, you know, I, I hold myself to a very high standard and I think we're all very critical of all the wines you'll taste today. I don't think any of these wines are perfect by any means, but I think we, we work every year at, at making things better. Great. Should we taste some wine? That sounds great. What do we have first? So um, a really unique thing about Montalena is that we've been, we set aside five to 10% of our Chardonnay and Cabernet production every year for re-release. Oh, cool. So not only do we talk about ageability, like we'll actually show you and we'll sell you the wine. So I brought two Chardonnays for you. I brought the current release, which is the 2016 and the 2011 uh, okay. to go along with it. And so uh, both of these wines are available in the market. And um, some people like seeing these wines in their infancy, and then other people want to, you know, fast forward to something sure, with a little bit of age behind it. Age. Very similar for vintages, the 16 and the yeah. 11. And but it's neat to see just what an extra. I mean, this is obviously, you know, now this wine's eight years old, but to see what an extra five years does to this wine is is pretty amazing. Yeah, the acidities definitely sort of come into harmony with the fruit. No question. Uh, a lot of people kind of poo-poo the 2011 vintage just because it got some bad press, right? Yeah, I think and that's I think that's one of the, <coughs> one of the best Chardonnays we've ever made, and um, I put that wine up against any. Yeah, any I, wine I out think there. I I consistently find deliciousness in 2011 at a great value that people are looking for 12 because 12 and 13 were like these beautiful vintages, right. and it was wet in 11, but I like it. People it's, will come back to it, I think, yeah. and you know, and it's it's. Showing youth still. It is. This, this wine's got 10 years left on it easy. Exactly. Tremendous longevity. And hopefully what you're getting is there's a lot of texture and tension on that wine. And that's that's very difficult to impart. Uh, the easiest thing to do, you know, is to pick late, you know, 
press the heck out of it, put a brand new barrel on it, put it through ML, and you've got a very buttery, woody yeah, no, wine. It's not there at all. It's not there at all, exactly. This is, it's, it's got a richness around this. It's mm -hmm. got that kind of golden, delicious apple kind of flavor yes. and some lime zest. and That's very emblematic of cool vintages for us. Yeah, really elegant and definitely had with food. Definitely. I mean, that's uh, really uh, pretty, pretty wine. Thank you. So and this is then the 16th. The 16th. So this is the current release. And you know, both of these wines, they're in barrel for about 10 months and then a year in glass before released. A lot, a lot more freshness on this, obviously, because of the age. Yes. A bit more minerality to it, I think it's showing. A little, little stonier, a mm -hmm. little... But again, on the palate, there's that rich roundness. Mm -hmm. I don't think the uh, that golden delicious apple has quite come through yet, mm -hmm. but I could sort of see the apple's a little more green, I think, mm -hmm. on this hit. Maybe that's the youth, you think? Or? I think definitely that that's the youth. And remember, we're looking at a you know this long, um, this, this, this uh, well, curve's kind of the wrong word, but we, we're looking at this from a perspective of a 15 to 20 year wine. And so it's really about, this wine should be amazingly you know, beautiful and delicious in its youth, in its own way, and then in five years, it's going to turn into something completely different, but with some with that same vein, that that vintage character carrying through it. So, if we were to taste, and we have the 16, we have the 11. If we went five years before that, in the 2006, you'd see again, which also happens to be a cooler vintage. You'd you'd notice the similarities of the vintages, but you'd notice how the fruits expressing expressing uh, in a very different, unique way. And that's that's the fun, right? I mean, that's the that's the goal. That's what you want to accomplish. I like the sound of that. You know, I talk to a lot of winemakers, and I hear a lot of, "I want to express the place. I want mm -hmm. to express the place. I want to express the place." And you're more about, I want to, I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying you don't want to do that, but I like the idea behind, I want to express the time. That's right. The time is that's really so important. That's so important. Absolutely. And I think it, that, that's a, a common soundbite you hear out of people is that, oh, it's all about the place, it's all about this. And, you know, I, I think you have to taste it in the wine. And you can say that's what you're looking to do, but can you actually experience it in the glass? And Hopefully you can. I think you do on these. Right. So you said you do a the, you do a five year hold back. Mm -hmm. How much of that wine do you hold back? How much gets released? Is it is it gettable or is it just something that you know no, you know, a couple cases at the winery? Absolutely not. No, uh, we, we we do this with the express purpose of making sure it's available in the market. And so it's uh, again it's something that. Is, is very unique to Montalena, and we do it without putting a huge premium on it either. So you can actually afford it. So yes, you can find oh, it and terrific. you can afford it. All right, now what's next? We got Cabernet. Yep, we brought uh, two vintages of our state Cabernet for you: the uh, 2005 and the 2015. <laughs> so the you know this, this wine comes from you know our property immediately adjacent to Mount Saint Helena, mm -hmm. and it's literally grown. Part of it's in like straight volcanic ash, and the other piece is you know alluvium that seemingly goes down forever. So it's it's a it's a wonderful site. Uh, and you combine that with, you know, the Calistoga climate, which is already very unique and our unique microclimate, and you end up with, with that in the glass. Yeah, you know, it on the nose there's a lot of fr real fresh red mm -hmm. fruit and some some kind of purple flower, maybe violet I, mm -hmm. I can't quite Definitely tell. violet. And what's nice about it is, at least on the nose Napa Cabernet could sometimes be a little, you know, big and it is overbearing and, and, and voluptuous. Mm -hmm. And 
this has a freshness and a prettiness to it that doesn't have that showing. No, I think that that's that's totally spot on. And again, it's that sometimes restraint is really the virtue in this case. Uh, Fifteen big vintage, you know, powerful vintage, I should say, small on the quantity side, but very ripe Napa Valley vintage. It was it's easy to create those massive, you know, over extracted wines. And you know, in our case, that's really not what we want to do. No, so, not there's. No, virtually no extraction there. That's just what it is. That's right. Blend anything in there or 100% Cabernet? Uh, there's a little bit of Cabernet Franc and yeah. Petit Verdot. Petit Verdot, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, there's some rich fruit going on in there somewhere. Well, and it, it's, it'll, it'll open up with time in the glass. It's uh, Like I said, it's, it's a relatively new release for us. Mm-hmm. These wines, they are pretty tight and angular upon They're, release. Yeah, um, it's a little grippy, a little mm-hmm. young, still, mm-hmm. still tight, I think. It is. I've tasted at the vintage retrospective yes. tasting. Yes, And 15's... Even last year, we're still drinking huge. Mm-hmm. And this isn't that grippy and big and tooth-coating thing that a lot of the 15s were. Yeah, it's, it's drinking nice right now. It's easy to make those, I call this the firecracker wines, which right out of the gate are these, these just huge, you know, massive, exuberant experiences. And unfortunately, a lot of those wines don't have the legs to make it to the finish line. And after 10, 15 years, yeah. if you're lucky, they fall apart. You're making one of those... 17%, even though they're right. not calling them 17%. Right. With probably a little bit of RS mm-hmm. that they're not admitting to. Sure. And Okay, so 2005 now. 2005, and, and this is actually... This is a, before you were around. This is before I was around, uh, so I can't take any credit for this, but it's nice having this juxtaposition, wow. I think, because the vintages were fairly similar from a weather perspective. Uh, five was a much was a much larger vintage in terms of quantity, uh, relative to 15, but I think this gives pretty good perspective to where the 15 will eventually go. Sure, and that's a 14 year old right, wine. I yeah, mean, and where this is right now is it's showing a lot more perfume and a lot more earth. The the fruit is there, but it's mm-hmm. sort of like playing more harmoniously rather than the soloist yes. in uh, in the 15 mm-hmm. on the nose. Oh wow, harmonious is exactly the right word for mm-hmm. that wine. With and, a little- with a lot of longevity left. Still a lot of bright acid mm-hmm. and good tannins. Mm-hmm. And you, I would never have guessed this is a wine of this age mm-hmm. with, uh, by tasting it, really pretty. And, you know, the 15 is actually a more tannic wine. It's just, again, it, it's the kind of it's still, there, so, in the, yeah. it's still in its cocoon. Mm-hmm. It, it'll get there. But it's nice to have that perspective of that it's older It's really vintage, cool to be able to it? taste those mm-hmm. side by side and to be able to go out and buy them. I mean, right. With, and like you said, they're not at a super high premium. Mm-mm. Do you know what the retail prices on these wines are or not? Um, so the current releases, so the Chardonnay retails about $60, okay. 60 $65. And uh, the Estate Cabernet is about $175. Okay. Um, most of... At least on the Cabernet side, most of that ends up on premise. There, so in sure, restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there are some retailers that carry it, mm-hmm. and then the the library of vintages that go along with it. I mean, maybe 10, 15, 20 percent premium. It's not a huge. Well, not that much at all. It's not a huge number. And um, obviously, probably available on the website through the winery. It is, yeah. And my sales team is probably going to freak out if I got that wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it, it's it, they're out there for, for a reason. With a you know, we hope people are buying them and drinking it. There's no reason for us to hold them back if we release it at a price point that nobody can if, afford. If you've got a hard time. Uh, buying wine and aging it. Mm-hmm. This is a terrific way to taste some mature wines. 
I, I, I don't have that problem. I could, I can sit on wines and wait, but uh, I, I know, I know some friends who just want to get that cork opened up and start drinking, and you don't have the opportunity to drink mature wines always when you do that. That's so, the truth. Matt Crafton from Chateau Montalena, thank you so much for your time. It was great to hear your story. It was great to taste these these wines that are really part of the legacy of Napa Valley and where it is today. And so glad you're there. And I hope to come on and see you at Chateau Matelas. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. Mm-hmm.